Hello and welcome to the That's Afterlife podcast with DMS Ranson and Adrian Mills. So here we are again. I'm Esther Ranson. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Adrian Mills. We're still on speaking terms, Adie? Well, just about. It's just as well we're in uh, separate areas of the country, though, I suspect, Esther. Otherwise, we'd be at each other's throats, wouldn't we? I just know it. You sound a bit standoffish. Are you in a bad mood? I'm in a really bad mood. Uh, but I, I hear on the grapevine that you're in a very good mood because you saw your grandchildren the other day. Yes. Yes. Please don't tell Chris Whitty or any of those important people but one ran towards me and hugged me around the knee oh no no well I don't know whether breathing on your knee is regarded as infectious but they are of three years old you see what I mean so I mean you must be like every grandparent or parent around the country um how was that feeling when you saw them difficult to sum up really I mean it's it's just spectacular it's like going to the best fireworks party with a glass of champagne and somebody handing you an oscar but guess what they persuaded me to do go on trampoline sorry what <laughs> have you trampolined uh, i i have and i and i have to say i hated it because i felt quite sick afterwards i get car sick and it really did make me want to throw up and it had a very unfortunate effect on my bladder <laughs> Oh, no, I shouldn't laugh. There is something about incontinence, isn't there, that is funny. So what have you been doing this week? Oh, Esther, Esther, you will... I wish, wish, wish we were still on there doing That's Life, but this is as close as we're going to get. Get this, you know when we did the Barry Humphreys podcast, I mentioned that my car had been stolen. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you to the wonderful people at Tracker. We were able to find it in East London. So I had to go in an Uber, collect it, brought it back, Eight or nine days later, I get a penalty charge notice from Newham Council saying you were photographed at 3.30 in the East End, driving the wrong way down a street. Here's a £65 fine. So obviously I thought, oh, well, that's the thief. So what I'll do is I'll fill in the form and say, well, the car was stolen. Yesterday, I got this reply from New the London Borough of Newham parking correspondence, right? Yeah. It says... You have stated in your representations that your vehicle was stolen during the time of the contravention. We have carefully considered what you have said, but we've decided not to cancel your penalty charge notice, and I now owe them £130. <laughs> <laughs> what mad world are we living in? If you like, for a small fee, I'll do a sonnet about your bonnet, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> By the way... We've got a real scoop in our podcast this week. Natalie Dormer, beautiful, intelligent, and with a startling piece of news for all the people listening. If like my daughter, you're a Game of Thrones fan, and I know thousands, millions around the world are, this will be fascinating. I know her because she's a fantastic supporter of Childline. So there's lots and lots and lots I want to talk to her about. But I think that she has, as you say, so many fans, I think she will be riveting listening. Well, I'll be interested to hear what uh, she says about the afterlife when we ask the question as to uh, what does she think the afterlife is like and, and what object do we think she'll be taking? Something to do with dragons, maybe? 
Oh, yes, I think it'll be something magical, but I haven't made my mind up what yet. So uh, we'll look forward to that. And uh, in the meantime, uh, we've got so many listeners sending us their emails and favourite life hacks. I know they're favourites of yours, Esther. We love to hear from you. Whatever subject you want to share with us, hello at thatsafterlife.com is where you'll find us both. And, uh, and if you do subscribe to our podcast, and we sincerely hope that you do, then please, please give us a rating. Uh, we'd love to get some five stars from you, wouldn't we, Esther? We absolutely would. Right. Now. This is, Esther, I have to tell you, nothing made me smile more than this following email from Keith in Ipswich. Mm. Uh, Dear Adrian and Esther, I've a lovely memory of Cyril Fletcher. And how much did we all love Cyril Fletcher? Mm. And wait for it, Dolly Parton. And although I always associate Cyril with that's life, I think the memory must be from a television chat show. Cyril had recently visited with his wife, the church where they were married in order to rededicate their commitment to each other. Dolly was asked if she and her husband ever did anything similar. Dolly said that on their anniversary, they drive to the cliff, look out where they used to go when they were first together. They then climb into the back of the seat of the car and rededicate their commitment to each other. And apparently the look on Cyril's face was priceless. That's, that's really interesting for all kinds of reasons. One is, can you imagine wedging yourself into the back seat of a car with Dolly Parton? I mean, so much <laughs> of her would take up. Anyway, we won't go there. Uh, uh, so just out of interest, have you ever been caught out uh, re-dedicating uh, your commitment to anywhere that you shouldn't? Just think about this. There was that telephone kiosk. <laughs> do, do tell. In the days of red phone boxes, you know. Yes. Well, I think I may have rededicated myself <laughs> and a friend. Oh, well, yes. I, I, I've got a particular experience on um, a rowing boat in Derwentwater, uh, but it's not a good experience because I tripped and fell overboard. Was it with a lady? Of course it was with a lady. And did you stick your oar in? <laughs> <laughs> She's one of the most famous people I have ever met. And her name is Natalie Dormer, and I believe she's joining us now. Hi, Esther. How are you, Natalie? I'm all the better for seeing you, my love. It's been a while. I was trying to work out when it's in the pre, pre-pandemic days when I last gave you a hug. Indeed. It's been a while. Mm. Indeed, indeed. And you have been extremely busy and, one might say, productive. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a perfect thing to do during a pandemic is get pregnant and <laughs> have a baby. Um, I feel like I'm probably being a bit of a cliche. She'll probably be sitting in a bar in sort of 30 years time on a date going, yeah, I'm a COVID baby. I think there's going to be lots of COVID babies because what else could people do? Maybe like blitz babies. Well, that's amazing. And how old is she? Uh, she's 12 weeks. She's, wow. yes, yeah, she's just three months. So She's an absolute joy. Um, I'm never going to complain about shooting hours ever again because the sleep deprivation is something else. But I know that you can give me plenty of tips. I know you've been through it. Well, all I can tell you is that I used to stagger to a mirror in the morning after yet another sleepless night and peer at new wrinkles which had emerged under my eyes. It's... Until it happens to you, I don't think you quite realise how tiring it is. No, I don't think you do. Um, I completely underestimated it. <laughs> I completely underestimated it. And also, I have to say, 
you hear people say, oh, your whole perspective on life will change and your whole set of value systems will alter and you sort of roll your eyes as a childless person and go, yeah, yeah, you don't know the true meaning of life until you've had a baby. And then you have one and you go, oh, wow. (laughs) It really does completely alter the lens and things that did matter oh so much. Just there's a whole new perspective to life, isn't there? I'm in love. I'm absolutely in love. She's a joy. And it's it's a steep learning curve. And sleep has always been very valuable to me. But that's the only down. And you know, nature's so clever, the hormones kick in. So yeah. you don't but you don't it's you don't begrudge it. So nature's very clever. <laughs> Is it gonna be difficult, do you think, parting from your baby girl when you know the next big job comes along? Do you gonna are you gonna find it difficult? I'm going to find it very difficult. I think you don't want to warp a child's childhood experience. People in the industry that I'm in do lean on nannies and they do that for a reason so that they can take children with them. But I mean, for me, I'm just like, this is perfect. This is perfect time to go back to the stage because then I could, you know, just be with her all day. And then this is, you know, this sort of would itch my uh, itch my scratch of my scratch my itch rather sorry other way around see baby brain of uh, wanting to get back on the stage but obviously with um, that would time nicely but with COVID who knows when that will happen um, I really feel for our theatres around the country it's hard times but, what is um, what is your background I've never asked you I mean stage I was trained uh, my my first love as they say um, my first love is the stage um, I was three years classically trained. Which do you prefer, theatre or film then? Well, like I say, it's sort of, you know, theatre was always my first love. It just sort of was, you know, it just sort of the way it worked out that's my first big jobs ended up being camera jobs. Mm. And I mean, I try and return to the stage when I can, Adrian, but um, I mean, truly, because in my heart, I still consider myself a stage actress, a stage actor. Um, and they're different skill sets, but I suppose as you with as you'd know with presenting a different kind of show is a different kind of discipline. Mm. For, Ab- you know? Absolutely, and it's the same film and studio in, in television, very different kinds of presentation. But are you telling me that when you were doing things like Anne Boleyn or, or um, Game of Thrones, you were working long days? Yeah, well, I mean. <laughs> If you really want me to get started. <laughs> go on, go on, get started. <laughs> um, uh, us, us girls do get, well, it's not all. I mean, sometimes the boys get a rough a rough ride depending on what their costumes are or what their the character demands are in costume and hair and makeup. But, you know, uh, because I'm often wigged for a show or whatever, I mean, it's not unusual for the alarm to go off with a four in front of it, sometimes a three in front of it if you're really unlucky. And then, you know, you're shooting by 8 a.m. And then in this country, there's there's harder outs. You know, you have to stop by six or seven or whatever, depending on what style of day they're going with. But with in America, they will keep going until they've got it sometimes. So you can find yourself shooting, you know, to, if you've started at eight, you could easily find yourself shooting to nine, 10 o'clock at night. So having started at three or four in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and then there's things called continuous days, you know, where you don't have a lunch break. I mean, I love a lunch break because I nap. I'm a, I'm an, I'm an A1 napper. I'm a cat. I can nap anywhere. Um, it's a, it's a life skill and I'm, I don't have many, but I'm very proud of that one. I can pretty much nap anywhere. 
which has proved very useful with a baby. <laughs> very. I mean, don't get me wrong. I do love shooting. I, I adore. I do adore camera work too, and I adore the camaraderie of a crew mm. and getting you know to know the gaffer or the the electricians, sparks as we call them. I mean, I love the camaraderie of a of a of a shoot, and it's a different kind of acting when you can be close to the camera and have that relationship with the camera. So just want to set that straight that I'm very pleased with all the screen work I've done in my life um, that I've been gifted with that. But the, the one thing, the one thing that I have not had to deal with, which Esther has had to deal with, and you certainly have had to deal with, is press intrusion. Yes. I mean, yes. That, that would take an hour in and of itself, Adrian, truly, it would. It's, it's crazy. There's no other word for it. It's bonkers. It really is. Yeah. I saw a sequence of paparazzi photographs of you, which I absolutely could not believe. And all you were doing is walking along a pavement, holding a cup of coffee. And it was quite clear that this guy had just been taking shot after shot after shot after shot. And which must have felt like some sort of persecution from your point of view, because he was in front of you all the way. And then this newspaper published them all. Why? I mean, yes, what, I think what you're referring to, Esther, is a series of shots that ran uh, last year. So last year, I've lost track of time because I'm, I'm COVID-fied. <laughs> David and I, have, he's my partner. We live together. We were just two people going out, getting a coffee. And the thing that was really extraordinary was it was, it happened sort of once a week for like four weeks in a row during lockdown. And, and it was the first lockdown where... Um, you know, we were all being hyper vigilant. There was an air of distress with everybody, you know, because we yeah. were, we all didn't know what this thing was. We were all trying to be, um, and it was pre everyone wearing masks all day, every day, but it yeah. was the beginning of lockdown. And I found it most disconcerting because, you know, it was a road away from my house and it was repeat, repeat, like, as you say, it was just us walking along the street. And the thing that was truly emotionally distressing, and I lost sleep over it and, you know, cried over it, Esther, was I never saw him, not during ne any, any of those times, I never saw him. So it's this, that it's clandestine, that it's done without permission. And, you know, I can say it now, I couldn't say it at the time, but I was pregnant and it was lockdown and I have family in the NHS and life was stressful. And mm -hmm. then you find yourself completely unwittingly, you know, in a tabloid and, you know, no one, no one needs that. I'm not saying that I'm special. No one needs extra stress in their, in their life like, like that, you know? You really shun social media though, don't you? Well, it's not that I shun it. It's that I've never, it's, it, it's not as emotive as that, Adrian. I don't do it. At all? No, I've never done it. Don't That's do it. That's very never... unusual because here you are at the, the peak of your career. Uh, well, and many more, many more uh, miles <laughs> to go. He's digging a hole, Esther. He's digging a hole. Oh, I'm I so know, sorry. I know. It, it happens every <laughs> week. Um, but but a lot of people would say, oh, now this is the time to capitalize on it and be pumping out things. But you don't. I admire you for do not doing it. I mean, when social when social media really started taking off, really, what would it have been? Sort of like seven, eight years ago, it would have been something like that. Mm. I mean, I was, you know, I was, I was, I was sat down and I was given that conversation by 
you know, professional people who, who love me and want the best for me. And they said, you know, you need to do this. This is the future. This is how you need to, um, you need to interact with your audience in this way. And, and I've, my position agent has always been no judgment each to their own. And if people want to engage in it and do it, then I'm all like, how, how wonderful that they get to have dialogue because I have missed it in so far as when um, I've been misquoted or an editorial interview has gone sideways and I felt very misrepresented, you don't have that immediate outlet of being able to tweet or Instagram and go, that's not what I said, mm. or my words have been twisted. Or, and it's there forever as well. And, it, and it's there forever and it's, and you know, mm. people believe, I mean, Esther, you and I've had this conversation that like people believe what they read mm. and suddenly it ends up in Wiki and it's and and people believe it's fact, and and you're like and you're like whoa 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 this was a comment that was taken out of context and it was and 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 it snowballs. So there have been one or two moments in my career, Adrian, when I've gone, well maybe I should just to set the record straight. But my gut instinct was always, for me personally, um, I'm quite a I'm quite a private person. Mm. And I've always believed, for me, the the craft of acting is about being a chameleon and about changing and mm. and and being someone else. And mm. it jarred with me that people could believe and watch you being a different human being, under as a completely living a completely different life, and know what you also had for breakfast mm. in in inverted commas real life. Mm. So. I really interesting really no, I've always thought an actor sort of and it's an, an actors struggle with it actors that are much more famous and successful than me you see them struggle with this desire to have an, a certain level of anonymity so that you have the suspension of disbelief when they are playing other people mm. slash not being so wildly misinterpreted as a human being it's a and it's a push and pull that um we struggle with and also I have to tell you um Esther knows this about me when I do something I want I'm that's why I think Esther and I get on when I do something I want to do it a hundred percent and you know I want to do it absolutely to the best of my ability and I'm a bit of an anxious sort of um you know no you're not anxious you are perfectionist I'm a perfectionist but sometimes to my detriment Esther and I think if I, I I think secretly also on a subconscious level I knew if I did social media it would kind of like be an all or nothing thing and yeah, it, yeah. Would, it would completely yes. take and I would have to do it properly and do it to a really high level and and there's just not enough hours in the day. <laughs> I want to talk to you about some of the women you've played. Yeah. I'm fascinated by you and Anne Boleyn. Yeah. I love the story of how you were cast for it and you dyed your hair brown because she was famously a brunette mm -hmm. and almost got into terrible trouble because they had I did, I did get into terrible trouble because I was so dedicated to authenticity um and loving my history when I got the role I just dyed my hair brunette sort of a couple of year um, a couple of months before I was going to start shooting because I wanted to get used to it and I just naturally assumed that it's Anne Boleyn you know, who was called the Dark Mistress and, you know, the Crow and all these other awful names that she was given by her critics um, because she had quite sallow skin and dark hair. And um, I just went ahead and la 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 la, went and dyed my hair. And then, you know, Showtime had cast me as a blonde. 
and I sort of got this I got this email from a very upset head of department on the shoot of the Tudors in Ireland who is a dear dear friend to me now she's like my Irish mother she's like showtime I've heard that you've dyed your hair have you dyed your hair tell me you haven't dyed your hair <laughs> I was like I've dyed my hair <laughs> they're like but they wanted you blonde and it was such it didn't it didn't make sense to me in my head at all I was like I can't play Anne Boleyn blonde Jane Seymour was blonde I can't be blonde mm. um and they tried to dye it back and for all women that have had an unfortunate hair experiment time they'll know that it's not very easy <laughs> to dye dark brown slash jet black hair blonde you invariably look a complete mess and go orange um so yeah um I had to sort of speak to the we were in pre-production and they were working out inverted commas what to do with me I think my job had been saved I I apologized and they were just trying to work out whether to wig me or what to do wig me blonde and I just remember going up I was very young, I was, you know, I was early 20s and I, I was naive for the industry at the time. And I went up to the head of the, uh, I went up to the head of the network and I gave him a monologue of like being authentic and, and historically accurate to the real woman and talking about who Amberlynn really was and, you know, all the, uh, all the critiques she got for looking that way because she wasn't a beauty. She wasn't a fair, bonny, rose English lass as the court considered real beauty back then. I gave this long monologue and he, at the end he was like, well, if it's that important to you, then of course you can play her brunette. Mm. And, it, <laughs> and it's like, yes, it is that important to me. Um, so, sorry, that was a long winded. No, it was, it's, it's terribly interesting because she was a fascinating woman. I can tell you the one thing I know about her. Tell me. You may already know. I was once having lunch at Checkers. Right. And Cherie Booth showed me in a glass case the ring they took from Elizabeth I's hand. Oh. And uh, she wore it all her life. She and wore her mother's ring. Oh, you well, see under the ring, under the ring, there was a picture of Anne Boleyn. Oh, she's had it commissioned. And she never mentioned her mother's name. All her life, she never mentioned her mother's name because her father had murdered her mother. Now, you but, see, you saying that now makes me want to cry. Now that I'm a mother as yeah. well, it has, that really makes me want to cry because I always think when people ask me, and she was, history was rewritten. It was whitewashed. They say, you know, history is obviously the narrative of the victors. And when Henry got rid of Anne, he sort of completely downplayed what she'd meant to him and what she had been to the Reformation as part of that, which defines our country still to this day without getting into big socio-political conversation. I always say to people, you can tell what kind of woman Anne Boleyn was by knowing what kind of woman Elizabeth I was. There's so much history on Elizabeth I that nature nurture, you know, I think the nature part, mm -hmm. I think there was some, a lot of Anne Boleyn in Elizabeth I as well as Henry. And she was obviously an incredible monarch. So, yeah. And if we ask ourselves why she never married, why she never had children. When you've seen your dad do that. When you've seen your dad do that. 
Yeah. And, you know, there is a theory that she was abused by Somerset when she was a kid, mm-hmm. you know, and she had this fierce intellect, you know. She was ahead I, of herself in, yeah. you know, in, in fe- I mean, feminism in the true sense of the word, equality, mm-hmm. as in equality, gender parity. Mm-hmm. I mean, Elizabeth was light years ahead wasn't she? Monarchs were the only women that really had half a chance of of getting anywhere close to gender equality at the time, not being the possession in vogue. Because she didn't want to be a possession. You were, I mean, another drama I did, The Scandalous Lady W, you know, for the BBC, which was all based around a particular court case. You know, women, I can't remember the exact date now, but you know, women were classified property of their husbands mm. until some point in the in the 1800s, I think it was. I mean, like like a cow or a or a coach or a house. We we're actually property. Yeah, I no doubt Elizabeth. Was, even if I'm, even though I'm a monarch, if I marry my husband, I'm legally his inverted commas. Mm-hmm. No wonder she didn't marry. Absolutely, absolutely. What about this other woman you're famous for playing, Marjorie, in in Game of of Thrones? You do go for these interesting, clever women. I mean, people say that to me and I, you know, I, it, people say, you know, you love to do period drama. And I'm like, well, no more than the average. I mean, if you look at Kate Winslet or Keira Knightley or, you know, m- most British actresses do because so many good stories get, so many of our stories are told in a historical context. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have done, you know, the Hunger Games and run around with a shaved mm-hmm. head and dystopian, in a dystopian land as well. And, you know, I have done stage work that's modern or, you know, it's um, done genre pieces like the fades and so forth, but you're right in so far as I sort of know, I was, especially in America, I'm known primarily for Anne Boleyn and, um, and Marjorie. And I was scared of taking Marjorie because I thought it, she was too close to Anne. And I can remember um, David and Dan, the creators of GOT going, no, 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 don't worry, we're gonna, well, we'll help you there. She's different. She's different. You'll flesh her out differently. We believe in you. <laughs> Great things for producers, writers to say. Make it your problem. Oh, don't worry. You'll sort it out. <laughs> you'll make a different. Um, but I mean, as for Marjorie Terrell, I mean, I, I maintain that, that, again, a woman given tough cards, just playing the best hands she was dealt and because the show was set in a fantastical still feudal system a woman only has so much power and so she tried other than the great women in the show that obviously did wield swords that had their Joan of Arc moments but um yeah she just played she did what she did what she could with what she had and I mean that show guys was just I mean that was just being that was an amazing experience because it was just being on a zeitgeist show when it was cresting you know, and it was a very specific moment, cultural moment in television as, you know, this great content wave that we have now, the way people view programs has changed. And, and um, you know, it timed perfectly with that. And we, as a cast, we all rode that. I think it really was a zeitgeist show that changed the way people think about television and the, certainly on an international level, mm. Um, to be on a show that is genuinely an international phenomenon and be greeted and embraced and treated and spoiled rotten wherever you go in the world because everyone loves, you know, Juego de Thronos or, you know, wherever wherever you are. 
um, you know, that was a real privilege. I mean, I know from myself as an audience member, shows mean stuff to people. Yeah. They can be they companions. Yeah. Um, well, my daughter was obsessed by Hunger Games. I mean, yeah. absolutely obsessed by it. And, and that when you start talking about the hair, I thought you're going to become known for hairstyles and haircuts because my daughter was going, if I shave the side of my head, I went, no, please, please. She's an actress. Don't do it, whatever you do. Uh, were you made to do that or asked to do that? Or was that... In the books, Cressida... Um, totally has shaved, isn't she, I think? Completely shaved. And um, I spoke to the director of the film um, and he was like, you know... I'm thinking you maybe don't have to shave all your hair. I like this. I'm thinking, you know, and there was a reference, a particular model. I can't remember her name, which is bad of me right now. There was a complete, there was a particular model who was sort of sporting this cool shaved half head at the time. And um, Francis Lawrence, the director, and I had this great conversation. And he was like, what do you feel on that? You know, I want you to be comfortable. It's your head. And um, I was like, I think, I'm not just saying this because I don't want to shave all my hair off. I think one side would look pretty freaking cool. So we did it. And um, I mean, it did, it did look pretty freaking cool. <laughs> so I enjoyed, I enjoyed rocking. You do, that's the, that's the nature of our, our lives in the entertainment industry, isn't it? You find yourself going places or doing things that you would never ordinarily, uh, would even cross your mind. And shaving half my head was one of them. It made me faster when I ran the marathon for, for Childline. It gave me streamline on one side. <laughs> <laughs> now, shall we shall we talk a little bit about um, your support of Childline? Because um, you've run marathons. I have. I can remember coming in exhausted, throwing my sweaty arms around you, and you <laughs> offering me some spaghetti bolognese immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing Jewish about me, obviously. <laughs> but you've also, um, you've visited our, our bases, you've met our volunteer councillors, you've done a night shift, mm -hmm. which is very moving. I've done that too. So we thought you might like to meet one of our Childline callers. So we've got Holly. I don't know whether she's on the line, but when she was 15, um, she was actually in a psychiatric unit. Um, do you mind me saying, Holly, that you had made a serious attempt to end your life? No, of And uh, the hospital didn't take very kindly to this, but she did have a phone and that's when she made her first phone call to Childline. Can you remember why you rang Childline? What, what made you think that that might be helpful, Holly? I think I just, I've kind of exhausted the options of trying to talk to people at the hospital. Um, and I didn't have, I was on my own in a room, so I didn't have anyone else to talk to. And I just remembered the posters in my primary school with the number on and thought it was worth one last shot to try and talk to someone. Oh, Holly. Yeah, I wanted to say hi, because I didn't manage to get in there and say hello before you started talking. I remember the number as well from childhood. That's the great thing about the number that it was so memorable. So you found the strength to do that. And then what, hap what, then what happened next? I, I stayed on the phone for the person I was talking to probably nearly an hour in the end. Um, I was really, really distressed. And then I had, I, I kind of wasn't planning to kind of give up my plans there, but I spoke to them for about an hour. They calmed me down. Um, and I kind of, yeah, just really calmed down to the point that I was 
all right for the minute. Um, and then I kind of carried on. And then I called Childline a lot of times after that, quite a lot of times over the next kind of two years. Oh, that's wonderful. It's very, it's very brave of you, Holly, to pick up the phone and, and, and do that. Truly, very, very courageous of you. Yeah, I wasn't. I, it, I think a lot of the time when you talk to someone, you just, you're never quite sure whether they're going to believe you or trust you or kind of have anything that will be helpful. But they did, and I'm kind of forever grateful for that. Can, can I just ask you one thing? If anybody is listening to you or listening to this podcast or they're feeling in such trouble or in despair, what advice would you give them? Talk to someone, I suppose, just anyone. I mean, if it, if it can be someone, it, it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's someone that you know, um, family, friends, teachers, or if it's childline. It's, starting is kind of, talking is the start of, moving forward I suppose and it, I know everyone kind of says oh well she talks it makes it better and you think oh it you know talking isn't going to fix what's going on in my life right now but it does make it seem a little bit less heavy and it made a massive difference to me. Mm -hmm. Well thank you so much Holly I think it makes a huge difference to someone like Natalie who's done so much for us to to realize that this is just you know, the proof of, of the crucial power um, of holding out a hand to a child who may think that life is not worth living. And if anyone is listening to this, as Adrian says, we just need to remind people that if you get on the Childline website or you ring 0800 111, it's there for you and it's confidential and it's free. And you talk to someone who will listen and somehow you will find that it makes even the toughest, most difficult life worth living because it gives you hope. Am I right in thinking the numbers have gone up with the pandemic? Absolutely, it absolutely. And uh, we can't meet the demand. The job is not done. And I, and I genuinely believe other than climate change, <laughs> I think our children are the, the most important element that you know for us turning our atten our attention to in society it's an absolute travesty and scandal that we don't put our children first and foremost in everything they are they are the future and um, whether that's destroying their planet or making sure that they feel that they're heard and supported when they're going through psychological or physically or physical horrific times children are our children are our future and the NSPCC uh, tagline logline of you know every childhood is worth fighting for I mean I, I believe that so strongly well well done and fantastic for everything you do and Esther you know without without you I, we wouldn't have childline so uh, you know wow just before we let you go Natalie we are called that's afterlife what do you envisage the afterlife to be like what do you see there and what object would you be taking with you he asks the atheist <laughs> <laughs> even better <laughs> <laughs>
if there were an afterlife where I found myself waking up and looking around and going, oh, right, I'm here, I was wrong. <laughs> if it's my bliss, then there needs to be a yoga mat, there needs to be, you know, a nice hot jacuzzi or something, there needs to be a gin and tonic, um, and there needs to be, I mean, whenever I travel as an actor around the world, um, when I find myself in all variant um, range of hotel rooms, in far fun, flung places. I always have two things with me, Adrian. I always have my music speaker, you know, and I always have a Sir Trudon candle, to be honest with you, because, you know, hotel rooms don't always smell nice. I disproportionately uh, do spend more money on candles than probably a sane human being should. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Natalie. Natalie. And, I, and I hope whatever your next part is, you will be, I hope, flying high. Oh. And you will not come to a sticky end as both Marjorie and Anne Boleyn unfortunately did, let alone the Hunger Games. And may your hairdo be whatever you choose. Well, at the moment, Esther, because of lockdown, I just want the split ends cut off. <laughs> I agree. Okay, it's been it's been gorgeous to chat. Thank you for your time, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm in love, Esther. She's a very, very clever, talented, beautiful woman. Isn't she just? Isn't she just? And she really cares a great deal. You know, whether it's a part that she's playing or a charity that she's supporting, mm. she does it with every fibre of her being. She's mm. fantastic. Uh, remember, we want to hear your views. Drop us a line. Hello at thatsafterlife.com. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for joining us. Till next time, from us both, goodbye. Bye-bye. That's Afterlife is a Captive Minds production and is series produced by Ross Haley. The creator and executive producer is Liz Mills. Mm -hmm.